everybody, and welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Got a really uh, important interview today with David Reese from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And we're going to be talking about this article I read uh, recently, but it came out like over a month ago from The Intercept. And it's about mass surveillance and this amazing expose they did about basically these super secret facilities in uh, eight major cities across the United States, all owned by AT&T that um, doing some things we've suspected for a while, uh, some of these things that, you know, Edward Snowden and uh, a guy named Mark Klein uh, who came forward and, and said, hey, I think that we're being mass spied upon here, uh, did this amazing expose. And for some reason, it just has not received a lot of attention, which is just shocking to me. So uh, I wanted to make sure that, that we talk about this and I could think of no better person than uh, talk to David Reese, who we've talked to many times before, talk about the Cloud Act and some other uh, uh, areas around NSA mass surveillance. So uh, without any further ado, let's bring on David Reese and let's dig into this issue and figure out what is going on. And today we're talking with David Reese. He's a writer covering NSA surveillance and federal surveillance policy for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. So we're here today to talk about uh, some more mass surveillance stuff. And you you and I have talked about these things in the past. We talked about the Cloud Act and things when you've been on the show before. Friend of the show, glad to have you back. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Thanks uh, for having me back. And uh, what we're doing today is uh, The Intercept published this article. It's actually, I think, about a month ago now. Uh, kind of a groundbreaking article, I think, uh, detailing NSA surveillance activities in eight, uh, what they call service node routing complexes, uh, which are owned and operated apparently by AT&T. Uh, they, they listed uh, eight cities, Washington, D.C., New York, Atlanta, San Francisco, um, Dallas, Chicago, Seattle, and L.A., basically all the big cities all around the U.S. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. what they're basically saying is that these super secret complexes are tapping into the Internet backbone and recording all sorts of uh, things that are going on. So I've got plenty of questions about that but let's start with the most basic one because it's uh it's the lays the ground for all this why why does this matter is it isn't it the job actually of the nsa to gather signals intelligence to catch terrorists and other bad guys i mean this isn't this kind of what we expect them to be doing <laughs> it's a great question you know like hey isn't this this is what we hear time and time again this is the job this is the job of our uh, our national security and intelligence agencies uh to sort of protect uh national security as they say and there is a valid argument in that, absolutely, to keep us safe. Um, but the problem, quite glaringly, is that the NSA particularly is, uh, is focused on foreign intelligence gathering. And in their foreign intelligence gathering, uh, there doesn't seem to be actual targeting uh, that only picks up foreign intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, through this kind of mass surveillance, the kind of mass surveillance that is happening in these eight buildings, uh, they are picking up countless Americans' records. Uh, and that means uh, your internet communications and also records about you know who you call and when you call. And for a really long time, that included purely domestic, you know, American to American phone call. You know, when you called someone, what number was dialed, how long that phone call was. Uh, that's not foreign intelligence. And is that to say that they were, that it's, and we're going to get into these details, but from a legal yeah. perspective, it's, that's metadata kind of that you're talking about. It's, it's not so much the content of the conversations that you were discussing, but mm -hmm. it's who and when and what and, and how long and where each of the people were located and that kind of thing. That's metadata. Is that, is that mm -hmm. not covered by privacy rules currently? Is that just free for them to not, because obviously the content I think is a separate issue, but yeah. for the metadata part, is that, are they just free to collect that at will? Are there no governing privacy laws that cover that? So the way that uh, privacy works in the United States is that we do not have like a holistic, you know, single 
privacy piece of legislation. We have a lot of piecemeal things. And uh, what you said, the way metadata is treated is uh, is different uh, even from state to state sometimes mm. uh, and what counts as metadata. So long story short, uh, the protections on metadata privacy are uh, poor if existent whatsoever. Um, and if they do exist, they're, you know, single efforts by certain states saying like, hey, we should have protection on location, which, uh, you know, GPS data actually is considered metadata. Mm -hmm. It's not a considered content. So uh, you're right. You know, those things like uh, what time you call someone, uh, your location, uh, how long that phone call lasted, that is, again, that's not content. It's not, you know, the, the words spoken on the phone. But those things when, you know, put together in a nice little list and kind of cross-reference, they reveal a lot, and sadly, no, they do not have uh, strong privacy protections, kind of whatsoever. Yeah, and and so the content itself, and and the other aspect this wanted to bring up is you talked about the the NSA's purview being foreign intel or foreign foreign signals intelligence, supposedly, mm -hmm. um, and then the, the the flip side of that, I guess, is the FBI, right? They're they're tasked mm -hmm. with domestic. Yep. Um, if the NSA is is hypothetically, if we believe these uh, the reports and that they are tapping all this and gathering all this massive data, can they hand that to the FBI and say we're not allowed to look at this, but maybe you are? Uh, yes. Like, kind of long story short, again, yes. Uh, it's not. We don't believe that it is a hundred percent handing over. Um, from what we understand of uh, reports out there and how these systems kind of work, uh, and also kind of what data is being accessed. Again, we have this kind of uh, separation we can think of as a data that pertains to phone calls and data that pertains to like online communications. So, mm. you know, your emails, your chats, stuff like that. Um, and the FBI has, we believe, its own databases uh, where like the NSA's N uh, databases kind of get filtered, uh, you know, through their own process that we're not entirely certain of. But it gets filtered, and that can be accessible by FBI agents. Uh, often, however, uh, there are violations. Uh, FBI agent does get to see a piece of data that they're not supposed to see. We know this because there have been publicly released court documents uh, where uh, the court that oversees NSA surveillance says, hey, look, we, we caught something. This wasn't supposed to happen. So if something as simple as like an FBI agent wasn't supposed to see data, but they did, mm. uh, if, if that's happening, it kind of makes you question well, how good are the controls really? You know, like how good is this filtering? How good is this uh, internal database being set up, you know, for people to see things that they can and people to see things that they can't? Uh, it's just a lot of questions and it seems it's cloudy in there. Yeah. And of course, because it's all kind of this kind of behind this veil of national security that, mm -hmm. you know, they there's really no... There's no transparency. At least, <laughs> I would argue that there's some. You know, we could find some middle ground there, but it seems like there's basically zero, and we're just counting on these guys to do the right thing. And there's really no way to audit that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is. You're absolutely right. Very, very little transparency. Relatively zero transparency. Um, the things that we do see, again, this court that oversees the NSA surveillance. It's its own surveillance. It's called the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Uh, also sort of named of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. That's why you see it, FISA, mm -hmm. uh, and then the FISA court. Um, they, oh, they provide oversight to the NSA, and how that oversight works, uh, there's a lot of criticisms involved, but kind of briefly top level, they are the ones who say, hey, NSA, you have you know, uh, collected something that you weren't supposed to, you've kept something for too long, uh, or even this thing called a detasking. Uh, you've continued surveillance uh, on a subject or on a certain like 
uh, we'll call it a selector, uh, a phone number. You've continued surveillance past the authority that we have given you. Uh, so there, and we don't find out about these opinions uh, until we fight for them. You know, these yeah. even though this is a this is a court, which we typically interpret as you know a public venue, something that many courts in this country you can rightfully go, you can sit down, you can watch a proceeding happen. You know, that's your right as a public citizen. Uh, that's not the way it happens with the FISA court. Um, there, yeah. there are no like seats for you to sit in. There are no, there's no reporting of it. You know, even if you're waiting for a journalist or a reporter to kind of report on these things, these are things that they require uh, certain security clearances, which they do not give out um, easily. And in fact, there are members of Congress who have these security clearances, uh, but we can only assume as to how they use them. Um, they can demand information, but it also depends, like, will they get that information? So there's nearly zero transparency in this, in this regime. Yeah. And it's kind of, kind of hard to have an informed democracy and, to, yep. you know, to vote in the, the people that, you know, for policies that you want, if you don't even know what these secret courts are doing. Absolutely. So, and I wanted to. For the audience, like there's uh, there's some cases that I remember talking about it probably maybe, probably with you about how mm-hmm. even murky this whole thing is. When you think it'd be straightforward, like you know, uh, go to the FISA court. Can I monitor this person? Yes. And okay, well, mm-hmm. how long? How, you know, uh, for how long can I monitor this person? How far? How many contacts? Like how many hops can I go? If this person talks to this person, mm-hmm. can I talk to? Can I then monitor the person that person's talked to? And so there's that. And then and then I remember there's other weird things like. Like the, I think that like the one of the rationales the NSA came back with is, yeah, we hoover up all this data, but we don't look at it. So therefore, <laughs> we're not violating anyone's privacy. We're just storing it in case someday we might need to look at it, and we'll get a warrant later or something like that. Doesn't isn't, it? Wasn't there yeah. something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a. Uh... There's laughter because it's like, oh, it's surely it can't be that way. <laughs> but like, look, it it is that way, and uh, there is an argument from the government that. Uh, this collection, uh, like you said, this hoovering up of data, this vacuuming up of data, it doesn't really affect or invade, according to the government, it doesn't invade someone's privacy unless someone's looking at it. And so what the government is doing is it's, it's sweeping up as much data as it can, as it you know justifies itself to be allowed to do. And then it doesn't really like it doesn't really argue that it's invaded, you know, anyone's privacy until an analyst looks at those records. Until an analyst decides, you know, to punch in again one of these things called the selector. A human, say, hey, by the way, not that oh. doesn't count computers, right? This doesn't count algorithms. Oh, yeah. so we're only talking humans, right? <laughs> only talking humans here. Like there has to be human intervention, mm-hmm. if you'll say that. Uh, and I believe that there are even uh, like rules about how long a, a record is allowed to be kept. Uh, that that clock doesn't start ticking until there's actually human intervention. Right. Um, so it's not even like, oh, something's collected, and then if no one looks at it for five years or seven years, it gets dumped. Uh, I believe they have argued before that, oh, no, that clock doesn't start ticking until someone actually looks at it. And then five years after that. Yes, I remember that too. Taken out. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's just like, like <laughs> hearing the ins and outs of this system, it's it, – it becomes increasingly frustrating for sure. Okay. So we, we've actually, we've probably tried this ground before. So let, let's dig into um, the specifics of this, uh, of the intercept report. Cause it's, it's yeah. really just fascinating. So again, so the, the, the claim is that, is that there are 
eight of these high security, like literally black windowed, you know, <laughs> places that exist in these major cities that are sitting on top of internet backbones. Another these fat pipes where, because of the way the internet works, traffic that may actually not even reside within the U.S. because the the way the internet mm-hmm. route stuff is based on, you know, virtual congestion. It doesn't really have to do with mm-hmm. distance so much. It's just whatever's mm-hmm. cheapest, whatever's fastest, right? Which may be through the U.S. And mm-hmm. so they're sitting on this and, and, and vacuuming all this data, supposedly in, in these things, because AT&T is one of the companies that built the backbone of the internet as we know it today. So yeah. what do we, what else do we know about these buildings? Um, and is it, for instance, uh, for the sake of the audience, is this mm-hmm. only AT&T customers that are being affected by this? And do mm-hmm. we, is, is it just AT&T that we're reporting about it? Could it just as well be Verizon and Sprint and some of the other level mm-hmm. three, some of these other companies that also own backbone kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. So excellent question, you know, to parse out, you know, you know what kind of actually is happening here? Uh, this is a pretty detailed and deep article that goes, uh, again, kind of reveals and confirms a lot of the things that we've seen before and, and lays it out really clearly. And so what's happening here is that they're focusing on, the Intercept is focusing on AT&T, it seems because they've cited this uh, this thing they found, this top secret NSA map. You know, it's just a map they have uh, probably through many of the disclosures that they've received. Uh, and that map discloses locations in the United States. And basically they cross-reference those locations with AT&T, uh, where their networks have been built uh, or are active, and they say, "Hey, we got we got these eight matches," and those buildings were built. Uh, it seems in like the mid to late '90s as uh, infrastructure for the backbone of the internet. Um, something you know to help the internet boom, uh, mm. spread the internet as far as possible. And to the question of like, "Hey, is this just AT&T's traffic?" It is not. Uh, the way it is described in the Intercept is that these these complexes help other telecommunications and internet companies. Uh, they help them route their traffic if their traffic is congested. Like you said, if there's if there's a if there's a traffic jam, if you want to call mm-hmm. it, uh, these these uh, service nodes, these networks, they they help pass things along. So you're getting traffic from other telecommunications companies. So it's not just AT and T subscribers uh, whose traffic is running through these complexes. It's uh, subscribers of places like Sprint uh, or Deutsche Telekom or uh, it seems like that that one level three, I think. Um, it's other people's data. It's it's that simple. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, AT&T is a U.S. company, but it has, I assume, facilities all over the planet um, because, you know, these telecommunications are, have points of presence all over the place, not just in the U.S. So I don't know how this works, but the, as, with the NSA being a U.S. organization, AT&T being a U.S.-owned or corporation, can the NSA actually compel them to do similar sorts of tapping on the big, you know, backbones that might be in Europe or other places where they have facilities? So uh, it sounds like this is a kind of like an it depends, right? Like how how the law is being interpreted here, because the way that uh, this assistance, let's call it, uh, this assistance mm. would be uh, governed, or you know what laws would apply, is uh, is basically like the NSA saying, hey, we need your help. You know, it's a really nice way of putting it. We need your help tapping uh, internet communications and, and finding things across the backbone across the globe. Uh, there is a law right now that was passed in 2015 that does give telecommunications companies in the United States, so like AT&T or Verizon, uh, immunity if they help the NSA for uh, procuring you know, certain data, for helping with those spying requests. 
And so we do know that there's immunity at least allowed in something like that. As to whether like, you know, that applies to extraterritorial, uh, I could assume that since AT&T is a U.S. owned and operated, that that's, you know, what the government would likely argue. They say, hey, you're a U.S. company. We don't really care where the Internet is uh, because it's you that we're asking for help. And you have immunity because of USA Freedom. So there was a case where... Or Microsoft, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, was was holding data, uh, you know, because this whenever you've got this data that's all bits and bytes, it's all stored in a hard drive somewhere, um, and per, you know, perhaps multiple places. But if there is some physical location for data that's stored, and I think the government was asking them for this data, but it happened to be on a, sitting on a hard drive that was outside the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so there were, you know, Microsoft said no, uh, and then somehow or other we ended up with the Cloud Act that fixed that. <laughs> is that about right? <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah. Fix is like a, a term that the government would absolutely use on this. And you're right. Yeah, there was this case and a case that uh, we thought was going to be very important uh, where Microsoft was asked to help uh, deliver data. Uh, but that data was physically located in Ireland. And Microsoft said, hey, uh, a warrant, you know, just served, you know, within the United States on a United States company doesn't have a sort of extraterritoriality. It can't go beyond the United States because then they would be denying essentially the privacy laws of Ireland. And so there was this big kind of battle that was going to take place, like whose laws uh, supersede and is supersede even the right word? You know, do we have to maybe come to better cooperation with governments where our data is located Uh, because of the advent of the cloud? We have data that's not just the United States. We have it all over the world. Uh, That's how the Internet works now. Uh, And then we passed something called the Cloud Act, uh, which rendered that it rendered that that suit moot. It it was Mm. it it no longer had any effect. Uh, And the Cloud Act said, essentially, yes, yes, a U.S. warrant does have to apply to data stored outside the U.S. So long as that warrant is being served on a on a company that operates uh, and like handles data in the U.S., like if if some of that data happens to live outside the U.S., sort of too bad. Um, and so then that huge fight that we were like really gearing up for to watch and really could have helped settle a lot of like honestly difficult questions uh, that we need answers to, it was kind of wiped away with the stroke of a pen. Mm. And we've seen that happen before with legislation. And the Cloud Act was just rushed through Congress so quickly uh, that it was, again, extremely frustrating to see that happen yeah kind of like the other one you mentioned earlier where the retroactive and immunity for all the yep. telecommunications company that might be yeah boy okay um so absolutely <laughs> so you know our intelligence law enforcement uh, agencies are constantly complaining that you know the communications are all going dark because you know everybody's using end encryption now and so all these things supposedly mm-hmm. they had access to before they can and um We've talked about that multiple times on the show, but there was a recent announcement um, from the Five Eyes countries, which are, uh, I'm going to get these wrong, but it's like the UK, US, Australia, I don't know, do you remember what? uh, Canada and New Zealand, yeah. Thank you. Um, (laughs) And they're known as the Five Eyes countries, and they, because they have some sort of agreements, uh, these treaties between them where they share intelligence data on some level. And so these, these guys recently had submitted some sort of a joint statement basically saying that, quote, privacy is not absolute, unquote, and committing to somehow working together to add backdoors to encryption. And they've been threatening this for a long time, but somehow this, this particular thing seems to have, uh, shaken up a lot of people. I'm seeing lots of news about this. Um, mm-hmm. How do we, 
this very basic question how do, how can this stance this stance saying that that the intelligence communities must have ways of getting into all encrypted communications how, how can that really be defended under the fourth amendment i mean how does that even work what's your justification yeah yeah so interestingly enough uh one of the things we think about a lot here at eff is not even looking at the fourth amendment here we kind of look at it from a first amendment uh point mm. of view and we wonder uh because the the way the government is trying to uh, install, like you said, backdoors into encryption, uh, ways so that even if you have an encrypted, uh, end-to-end encrypted conversation with a person, that the government can still have a way of, of reading the text itself, reading the plain text. And the way that they've kind of pushed for that to happen is to actually ask the companies to do it. Uh, they're not pitching mm. their own technological solutions. They're saying Apple, they're saying Facebook, they're saying, hey, do this for us. Mm. You know, we, we are going to mandate you to allow us to see conversations, even if they're end-to-end encrypted. And we're going to mandate you to find a way for us to be able to do that. And we can get into like why that's particularly difficult with the technology as it's mm. set up. But there's still, you know, the thing we hear time and time again is they're telling companies nerd harder nerd harder and you'll figure it out and uh we believe that like that is an infringement of the first amendment because it's uh, it's sort of compelled speech you know the mm. government is telling a private company uh to do a thing uh and not only is it telling it to do a thing it's doing telling it to do a thing that absolutely harms security and goes against what the companies themselves are like branding themselves on are selling themselves on uh, a lot of people buy certain devices because of the security, uh, you know, features of those devices. Right. Uh, for you know, a company to be told, "Hey, you're actually you're going to have to make this thing worse." Uh, we believe there's a strong argument that 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 is illegal. Yeah, and it's actually the funny that you mentioned, like uh, you know, Google and Facebook on one side, and to me, Apple on the other. They're because to me, they're 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 different in the way they approach the stuff. Apple seems at least you know in their marketing and the way they position themselves is we don't want to know we don't we don't want yeah. to have the capability to give this stuff Absolutely. up that's the way we're going to approach this we're going to d- design a system that even we can't break whereas mm-hmm. you know google and facebook are like we don't want anybody but us to have access to your stuff <laughs> you know, including the government you know they're taking a stand in some cases there but you know they want to get in there because they're ad-based and so they need to know as much about or they believe that they need to know as much about you as possible to increase <laughs> their ad revenue so there's a definite difference in the way they approach those things, but yeah, it's yeah, that's interesting that they're basically tasking the the companies to do it as opposed to finding ways to do it themselves. So, right. so the nut of the issue for me, this whole thing is, you know, how do we choose between, you know, and is this a false choice between weak encryption and going dark? Is you know, on what basis can we evaluate? this choice that balances the needs of law enforcement with people's right to privacy. And I know that like, for instance, we, and we already have laws in the books for this. There's Kalia, which mm-hmm. is something mm-hmm. I forget what it stands for, but it's, it's the old wiretap law, right? It's um, communications assistance for law enforcement. Yes. Act, a pretty broadly defined uh, wiretapping law passing like 94 under, uh, under Bill Clinton. Uh, and it's, <laughs> it's a, it's a law that again, we, we see a lot of words like this sometimes, it, it compels assistance. Mm. It compels help. Um, and it's always wearisome to see kind of those like broad terms in legislation because it's like, what is assistance? You know, what what is not assistance? And like, what is even, like we were talking about with Apple, uh, Apple literally cannot assist on certain requests right. to, to, you know, 
decrypt conversations because they do not have the information to decrypt those conversations. Um, and to like kind of get to the point of like, hey, you know, what do we choose between weak encryption or the so-called going dark? Um, weak encryption, you know, just to kind of emphasize it here, we see a lot that that people kind of think have this idea that like, oh, you know, Apple was asked to, uh, you know, to access one phone. Like, oh, Apple, it's just one phone. Why can't you do that? It isn't one phone. You know, it's never been one phone. It's always going to be a tool that is used uh, for future generations for multiple devices. Um, yeah. We should never, you know, if, if we have the choice, we should never choose weak encryption because weak encryption for one person um, becomes weak encryption for all of us. Yeah, yeah, that's what I always have, uh, I've heard it described as you, you can't make a door that only good people can go through. Mm -hmm. uh, once you've made the door and you know, anybody can go through it. So it's absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you at the EFF have been involved in this case, uh, for, I think some 10 years now at someone named Carolyn Jewell. So who is Carolyn Jewell and how does she have standing to sue the NSA? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Carolyn Jewell. Uh, excellent. She's, uh, she is the main plaintiff who is named in Jewell versus NSA, uh, a lawsuit that EFF has taken on. Uh, for 10 years now. Um, we're hitting like our 10-year anniversary. Uh, so ta-da for that, I guess. <laughs> um, and Carolyn Jewell is an AT&T subscriber, right? Okay. It's, it's kind of really just that simple. She's an AT&T subscriber. And uh, in like 2006, 2007 maybe, uh, we had an individual who used to work for AT&T named Mark Klein uh, reach out to us, EFF, and say, hey, I, I believe that I have worked and my team has worked, or at least been told to work on creating a sort of infrastructure within the AT&T build, AT building that I work in, an infrastructure that would allow for mass surveillance by the NSA. Uh, mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, the building that he worked at is one of the buildings that is named <laughs> the Intercept article. And so when we received Mark Klein's descriptions, and can we kind of walk through what we think the technical analysis would be, uh, we believe that you know, we had found evidence, uh, at least testimony of, you know, an illegal surveillance machine, you know, this regime. And so we sued. And it's kind of just that simple. Um, the lawsuit was thrown out actually once in like 2010, uh, dismissed the suit. Uh, Judge Vaughn Walker dismissed the suit, um, saying that, like I said, Carolyn Jewell actually did not have standing. Standing is this meaning that like she couldn't prove that she had any mm -hmm. right to sue because she wasn't harmed. Uh, we filed for appeal. Uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals did reinstate that case actually in 2011, and it is still going on to this day. Actually, we're still going through it. Uh, and there are some massive wins for us in the fact that uh, in 2000, I think just two years ago or, or one year ago, uh, the judge that we have now uh, did order the NSA to gather all of the evidence that they could that could help Carolyn Jewell, uh, prove that she was harmed, that her privacy was infringed. Um, it's interesting because uh, you hear a lot of times uh, a lot of different like laws that the NSA uses to justify its surveillance. You know, you hear things like Section 215, Section 702. You'll hear these things about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Mm -hmm. uh, this is an interesting case because uh, we were told by Mark Klein about this uh, about this infrastructure that would allow for mass surveillance. Uh, and we decided, hey, that's just plainly wrong no matter what. Um, <laughs> it could be Section 215. It could be uh, a different section. Um, 
But what's happening is Americans' communications and metadata are being swept up without a warrant, and that is unconstitutional. So the basic premise of the case, if I get this right, is she's just a regular, average, everyday AT&T customer who has, there was no reason for her communications to have been monitored because she was not covered by any kind of a warrant, even a FISA warrant. But but you're basically showing that the NSA still does have her conversations on file and therefore her, her, her privacy was violated? Yeah, um, my understanding of that is the same. Like, uh, she is, there's nothing necessarily special about her. We have other cases where there are people who we believe uh, are, let's say, special, um, have, a, have a close relationship to it. But the way that the NSA was conducting its surveillance for, uh, I believe, like seven to 10 years is, and, and we've seen this, we've had this, you know, the New York Times has reported on this, the Guardian has reported on this. Um, if you made a phone call, <laughs> like if you made a phone call, <laughs> in seven years of your life, you know, uh, there was a reasonable chance that that was collected by the NSA for a short period for, for those years, because the way that their surveillance used to work was simply scooping up and gathering as much data as they could. Um, and, you know, when, when you can see reports out there saying, hey, nearly every single American's metadata was collected during this time, there doesn't have to be a special person. You know, every single person was affected. And this was the post 9-11 executive order 12-333 thing? Is that where this fell under? Ooh. Yeah, so um, after uh, 9-11, uh, shortly after September 11th, uh, George W. Bush did allow for something that we have now begun to call the President's Surveillance Program. Uh, it further authorized the NSA to collect data uh, that they reasonably believed had, you know, uh, a agent of a foreign power of a foreign or a foreign power involved in one side of the conversation. Uh, it's interesting because that ran for a couple of years. Uh, it was it was allowed in 2001 and it ran for maybe like five or six years. But then the Patriot Act was also passed like within a couple of weeks or within a month mm-hmm. of the president's surveillance program being uh, kind of forwarded. And the Patriot Act also allowed uh, for the collection of um, an enormous quantity of things, uh, things called tangible things, actually. That's actually how it was written. And sometimes we also saw, like, a lot, this was called the library records provision, because included were library records, like book records. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, my God. To collect a lot of stuff. And so, again, you know, we hear a lot of things about, like, you know, was it the President's Surveillance Program? Was it Section 215 of the Patriot Act? Um, which one is it? A what it is, is the NSA is collecting Americans' data without a warrant. And that is not their purview. <laughs> it's not supposed to be, anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so would we have known about all these things if it weren't for people like Mark Klein and Edward Snowden? I mean, is that how we – if they had not been for for them, for these whistle, well, whistleblowers, I prefer to call mm-hmm. them whistleblowers so people yeah. think they're traitors. Um, is, is that how we know these things? And if not for them, would we would be still be in the dark? So I take a probably optimistic view on this, that if it weren't for the whistleblowers we have today, we would have another whistleblower, Mm -hmm. right? Or another two or three. Um, There have been whistleblowers throughout the decades of American history. And again, optimistically, I think I personally just believe, again, if there wasn't a whistleblower by the name we know today, that hopefully there'd be a whistleblower Mm -hmm. of another name. 
you know, so that we could we could find out about these things. However, all that being said, denying the significance of Mark Klein and Edward Snowden in revealing and exposing, uh, really confirming how broad the NSA surveillance regime is, uh, denying their significance is foolish. Uh, they're extremely important. Uh, what they've what they've showcased and what they've been able to, um, again, expose uh, is so much of what fuels our fight for surveillance reform today. So, yeah, again, I would hope that someone else is a yeah. whistleblower there. Uh, but again, their their exposures are extremely significant. Yeah, that's a fair point. And I, I hope you're right. Um, and <laughs> I hope we have more of those in the future because obviously there's still things we need to know about. So mm-hmm. so how do, how do whistleblowers' laws actually work? Because I know this is, uh, you know, people throw these mm-hmm. terms around and they argue about whether or not someone is a whistleblower. It's kind of like, is someone a freedom fighter or are they a terrorist, right? It kind of depends on your point of view. <laughs> um, and... Uh, so much, you know, there's obviously these people are breaking some laws. Like uh, Snowden broke a lot of law- laws, I, I assume, and revealing this mm-hmm. stuff. And I'm sure if nothing else broke, you know, contracts that he signed for, <laughs> for disclosure. And yet mm-hmm. it, there must, there's a, there's a whistleblower statute. So there's, there is. Is, that be, is, is that because that there's like a higher law? Like, like I think of, if you ever read Isaac Asimov's books, there was the three laws of robotics. And then there was this <laughs> secret zeroth law that overrode all of them that you found out <laughs> later. Right. And then there's the, there's yeah. the, the other thing we always think about as the military, like I, if, you know, if I, as your commanding officer, I can't order you to do something that's illegal or against the constitution. Right. At that point, you could say no, because I've, you've got this overriding law. Is that, how does the whistleblower law work? Is it anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. So the, um, the, Whistleblower protections that are afforded to government employees and now government contractors, which is a, is a recent addition, um, are rather serpentine, let's say. <laughs> um, Doesn't surprise me. There are many uh, channels that a whistleblower has to take first, and not even first, but like only. Mm. Um, and a lot of those times, a lot of those channels are to their superiors. Uh, and if it's not, you know, they're superior, then they're superior, superior. And if not that, you know, it's like the boss's boss's boss and the boss's 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 boss. Mm. And, uh, there are also opportunities, uh, finally, like, you know, again, this is rather recent for whistleblowers to, uh, to go to members of Congress, but those members Mm. of Congress also have to have a certain jurisdiction. They have to be on a committee where they kind of oversee these things, where they oversee intelligence, for instance. Um, The problem with all of this, you know, the problem with all of like, okay, like, let's say you go to your boss or your boss's boss. And again, whistleblowing has to be found. uh, It has to be determined to be, uh, the whistleblower has to like have good faith, essentially. That's something Mm -hmm. that they truly believe is a a violation of any federal law uh, and kind of go for that. Whistleblower laws prevent that person from being fired um, or from getting a demotion or from right. maybe retribution being, of an yeah, retribution or from being moved to another department. Whistleblower protections don't protect them from being charged criminally. <laughs> and that's like the big thing. Like, okay, sure, I'm not going to get, you know, a pay, you know, decrease. But if I'm going to be prosecuted or charged with, you know, charges under the Espionage Act, Mm. Uh, which does happen, which very recently happened with a with a whistleblower named Reality Winner. Right. That's the protection we should be looking at. Like we should be preventing, you know, this decades old law, which was primarily written, you know, drafted and passed to stop 
spies, you know, spying yeah. happening within the United States, agents of foreign power actually operating in the United States. It's called that, the Espionage Act. The fact that we're using a, a spy era law against U.S. citizens who are whistleblowers, uh, there's no protection for them there, and that's maddening, you know? Yeah. That's, that's where the gap is. Yeah, it almost seems like, you know, like corporations usually have like some sort of ombudsman kind of thing where they're supposed to be some <laughs> independent third party. You never know how independent because they're still at the end of the day paid by the company, right? So there's some beholding there. But yeah, it's, it, the congressman thing sounds like an interesting option. I mean, it's some sort of a, you know, outside the regular chain of command method for raising these concerns that still, you know, contained, especially for national security type, you know, secret clearance kind of stuff. That's that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. But of course, you know, Snowden, I don't know if he got in too late and didn't get grandfathered or whatever, but he's obviously still not covered by that. Um, no. <laughs> so, <He's> not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So this, this story by the intercept was published. I looked, uh, looked it up June 25th. So that's over, yeah. a, that's over a month ago. And yet I really haven't seen any coverage about this in the mainstream media. So, and honestly, I'd. If I if it wasn't me and I wasn't looking at the stuff I look at, I don't know that I would have known anything about Jewel versus NSA. So, mm -hmm. what what impact did, did that story have an impact? Does your case have has it had tangible impact outside the scope of its thing? Yeah, it's um, it's frustrating, right? It's frustrating to see a story like this. Um, which I'll be perfectly honest, when I read it, I was also like, whoa, mm. like, look at this story. Um, it's interesting because uh, I came to EFF. Uh, about a year ago, I'd say, and I remember like I read this article and I passed it around, and uh, the kind of reception here at EFF was like, "Oh yeah, this is super important. Uh, this is this is exactly what we've been saying in our lawsuit, you know, almost to mm -hmm. a T for ten years now." And so it is frustrating to see, you know, something that we've been churning away for ten years uh, being meeting obstacle after obstacle, and then it's also a little frustrating to see. You know, I do think this is a bombshell story. I think this is an enormous, yeah. enormous story and not getting more coverage. We at EFF are extremely, you know, pleased and extremely appreciative of when journalists take on these endeavors, when they're really doing their light at, you know, at doing their work at shining a light on surveillance, uh, because we feel it's like um, it's a moment to be like, oh, OK, we've we've been right. You know, we've been doing <laughs> the right thing. We've been saying the right things and we're getting more and more support. At least, you know, from from journalists and obviously from activists out there who, you know, sign up for our messages and sign up for, you know, take the actions that we take. Um, but the the sort of response from, you know, a story like this and the response to Snowden's disclosures in 2013 is very different. Um, mm. Almost immediately after Snowden exposed, you know, NSA surveillance for how big it is, uh, that is when we, uh, you know, a couple of years later, we got the, the USA Freedom Act. Um, it seems we Congress is going to move at the pace that it has already decided in advance. <laughs> mm -hmm. And one of the laws that is used to justify the surveillance that is taking place in uh, the article that The Intercept talks about that's taking place in, you know, within our lawsuit, uh, it's called Section 215, and it is up for reauthorization in late 2019. Uh, mm -hmm. So we've got, we've got a year and a couple of months. And we do believe like that's when the fight is going to take place. But it's interesting that, again, that date was given years ago, right? Um, no one's going to really be talking about surveillance reform before that deadline, unfortunately. It just really is unfortunate. We had another deadline a couple of months ago in late, late December of 20, 
17, Section 702, yeah. another NSA surveillance authority, we didn't get a bill about what the reauthorization was going to be until October. You know, that's three months, three months to discuss surveillance reforms that affect, you know, countless Americans. Three months is not enough time. And I'm so worried that it's going to happen again. You know, we're doing our part. We're talking to our partners. We're trying to see, hey, how do we get ready for Section 215? It's reauthorization. But again, when it when so much of the debate does rely on Congress introducing a bill, um, it's unfortunate that 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 wait is so long. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's let's see if we can talk about some positive things, some solutions to these <laughs> issues. That, so give our audience some um, some tools to use. What if if I'm concerned about this after hearing what's going on, and what can I do? Is there anything I can do to prevent my data from being snarfed up, or for if it is <laughs> gathered up to protect uh, to keep it uh, protected? What what kind of things could we be doing? Yeah, so uh, there are kind of two sides to that. Like you said, you know, is, is there anything I can do to protect my data from being even swept up in the first place? Mm. Um, it's easier to say no <laughs> on that than it is to say yes and go down like a rabbit hole of like deciding which, you know, which tech company is the best for uh, standing up to the government. I mean, mm. we do that work. That's great. But a more kind of practical, practicable answer is like, okay, if my information does get swept up, uh, what's the best thing I can do to protect myself? And there are some honestly good, easy, again, practicable things you can be doing. And so like, let's just talk about like browsing the internet. Mm -hmm. um, you can be visiting sites that enable HTTPS, um, which is just a, a more secure version of browsing the web. Now, mm. again, this isn't a cure-all. This isn't, oh, if you visit a website like HTTPS, uh, you know, EFF.org, you know, mm -hmm. just a little shout out to us, um, <laughs> that the NSA isn't going to see that you uh, visited EFF.org. Right. They will see that you visited EFF.org if your data is collected, right? But what HTTP HTTPS does is it uh, protects everything, as we say, after the slash. So they're not going to see the individual pages you see on any website. Um, so if you go to EFF.org and you look at our blog, they won't know what blog you looked at. Hmm. If you look at our events page, they know what they won't know what event you are interested in, or you know even want to say you're going to. But still know that you're going to EFF.org. So again, there are like there are things that can help, but there's no there's never a silver bullet, right? That's just not how it is. And then when we talk about you know let's move away from you know browsing online. Which, which is a communication. Yep. Uh, it's just good to think about that. It is a, it is communication that you're having with a server. But let's say talking to the people, you know, communications, mm -hmm. person to person. Another one is, uh, is, again, you have to kind of figure out what your, what we call threat model is. You know, yep. what's your threat model? Who, uh, who do you think would want to look at your messages? What are you at risk uh, in terms of, like, of having your messages intercepted or read or stolen or someone posing uh, for your identity? We all have different threat models, and we all do different things. You know, some of us are able to use email very easily, and some of us aren't. You know, and some of us uh, are able to use, uh, you know, mobile apps, and some of us aren't. That's just kind of, you know, everyone's a little different. So these these equations are very different for every single person. But one of the things we always talk about is, uh, you know, if you are a person who is using, you know, a mobile app, and you want secure, you know, strong encryption, 
looking for those apps that offer what's called end-to-end encryption. And Signal is one of those apps. Mm-hmm. You know, Signal is one of those. And what that means, long story short, is like we were talking about with Apple, uh, Signal does not have the tools to decrypt your messages that are sent between one another. They just do not. They don't keep it. They don't store it. Uh, those keys to decrypt, they don't pass uh, through their servers in a way that they can communicate, uh, or through their servers at all, from my understanding. And so if the government does come to them and say, hey, we want these messages, even if Signal was able to say, okay, we'll give you the messages, it doesn't matter because the messages don't mean anything. They're encrypted and Signal has absolutely no way of decrypting them. So there's things like that. You know, Even if, you're, even if your messages do get swept up in, in massive... You know, NSA surveillance, uh, making sure that if they're swept up, they're completely illegible. And by illegible, I mean encrypted. <laughs> right. And, I, and you know, despite everything you see on movies and TV shows, encryption, when it's done right, and that is a big if, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. because the implementation is usually where these things fall apart. The, the math for the actual algorithms themselves is, is really solid. I mean, it's yeah. the, the beauty of the, these kind of tools we have today is that they have been vetted by really, really smart people over long periods of time. And so as long as it's implemented well, and again, that's a big F, big F. Uh, you know, they, they, they should be secure, even through, you know, all these AT&T buildings we're talking about. Um, again, it's not the metadata, but it's the, the contents that at least should be. Yeah. And one thing that, um, that I do bring up usually when I talk about this stuff is it depends on who has the keys. Because um, even mm-hmm. Apple, the way the way Apple iMessage works is it's end-to-end encrypted. But Apple, mm-hmm. man- Apple, and when I say Apple, I mean like the, the app that runs on your phone mm-hmm. manages – generating these keys that behind the scenes are keeping these conversations private. But like, let's, if you're in a, if you're in a group chat uh, with somebody mm-hmm. on iMessage, every one of those, con- it's, it's not really a group chat. It's your, you have point to point end to end encryption with each of those people. And one thing I've heard uh, other security guys say is hypothetically, if the NSA were to force Apple to break that open, all they would really have to do is just add another secret participant <laughs> to that meeting, right? And there's basically they'd be mm-hmm. carbon copied on everything that was in the chat, and you wouldn't know it, even though every one of those individual conversations is end-to-end encrypted. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so it all comes down to implementation. <laughs> yeah, you you mentioned a particularly worrying idea that we've heard quite a bit about within the past, I'd say, few months or maybe even this entire year, which is this uh, this recent idea of maybe it's not you know giving the government its own set of keys to, to decrypt information once they receive it. Maybe it's like you said, adding them to a group conversation or adding them to a one-on-one conversation mm-hmm. in a sense that makes it a group conversation and then obfuscating the fact that they have been added. You know, right. There's a interesting feature, uh, I think a wonderful feature on, on some of these apps out there that when someone is added to the conversation, uh, the app lets you know immediately, hey, you know, so-and-so has been added, or even, you know, their key has changed. And that can give you a little inclination like, hey, why has the key changed? Have they bought a new phone? Because that's, you know, completely mm-hmm. innocent, normal thing that happens pretty often. Um, is it something else, though? And so those are good features. Those are good notification features. Uh, the idea of, you know, compelling a company to add the government to conversations in a way that innocent everyday individuals cannot see that information breaks so much trust that we have with some of these products that, again, actually do a very good job at implementing encryption. Uh, They're hijacking that trust. 
which is uh which is wrong on a whole new and scary level <laughs> yeah 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 all right so yeah so there's a short short version of there is use HTTPS where we can which luckily has been thanks to oh, things yeah. like let's encrypt has become a lot more popular now and a lot more ubiquitous which is great and then using you know apps like you know if you're if you're a regular everyday person iMessage is probably fine but if you're a journalist or an uh, a dissident or, mm-hmm. or 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 doing things like that you might want to consider something like signal or wire or something um so now from a from more from a policy perspective or a getting involved yep. perspective, um, what is it we can do as citizens to to demand more transparency and accountability from these agencies? What is, you know, obviously uh, legislation would be one way. Is is that <laughs> is that the only way out of these situations? Do we do, do we have to just demand legislation that and how do we fight back against things like when the, the you know, the government, the NSA coming out and saying we we need to have access to all this stuff? Yeah, yeah, it's um it's a really good question because uh, we get asked this a lot. You know, what can I do? I'm like one person, right? <laughs> and how can I how can I increase transparency? Um, there's an angle to this where we can simply demand. Like, it's not even a. It's not even. Hey, let's pass new legislation. Let's uh, you know, let's uh, let's have surveillance reform that goes further than it does today. Uh, sometimes it's like let's demand that the laws we passed are actually being followed by the NSA. And so a good example of that is again I'm going back to this USA Freedom Act, which did change the way that the NSA performed its surveillance. Um, and that happened again 2015. The USA Freedom Act currently requires a annual transparency report. It's supposed to come out every single year, and as part of that report, the NSA is supposed to divulge something this number called unique identifiers. And that's just a term uh, for like a certain number that would really help the American public understand how many Americans mm. are being affected and burdened by NSA surveillance. So again, this this law passed in 2015. We're now 2018. The NSA has never reported <laughs> the number of unique identifiers. Uh, so sometimes it's again, it's it's not even like hey let's gear up for a fight a year from now. Sometimes it's, let's have the fight, you know, right now. It's It's gone on too long for the NSA to say it can't comply with laws that were passed years ago. And interestingly enough, this is something that EFF and ACLU and a bunch of other civil liberties organizations, uh, we wrote a letter uh, to the Inspector General of the NSA, uh, sorry, the Inspector General of the Director of National Intelligence, another government body. Um, mm-hmm. We're saying, hey, what's going on? You know, what's what's happening here? And so sometimes it's it's just seeing what, you know, organizations like EFF are doing and, you know, voicing that. You know, sometimes people say like, oh, it's not the right time to, to make my voice heard. It's, you know, oh, there's so many things going on. And I understand there are always things going on. However, that's also part of it. There will always be things going on. Uh, so just making it known, you know, uh, reading what's out there and, and calling your representative, um, Fighting for what you know is right, uh, it, it really does add up. Um, it's kind of impressive. I know that there's so much doubt in the way that our government works, but this is an area where I can tell you uh, with enough push and enough pull, uh, our representatives do listen. Um, they do. I, I, I know. I'm, I'm kind of befuddled <laughs> myself. You know, like I used to be a non-believer. Um, but- seen we've seen the people come together and do really good amazing things and so it's just kind of you know keep reading keep understanding keep calling so you brought up a point that that something i've always wanted basic u.s civics if when when one part of government requires another part of a government to do something they pass these laws that say you know thou shalt do this yeah 
and they don't do it. Who's the policeman for that? Who's how, who's who's there to hold the NSA in this case accountable? Because they were supposed to do it by law. They're supposed to do it, and they didn't do it. So yeah, whose job is it to to fix that? Is it as we as citizens that we have to demand and sue them for this, or is there <laughs> supposed to be some part of government that 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 polices that? Yeah. So um, in this case, like this very specific case uh, where, you know, the NSA wasn't reporting, again, this this number, unique identifiers, uh, the the office that puts together that report, uh, the office of the director of national intelligence, uh, they're the people that we have decided can say, hey, it's it's time for you to put your foot down. You know, you're the ones drafting this report, creating this report, and you've allowed the NSA to get away with not complying with this requirement, you know, this legislative requirement. Sometimes, though, there are all the, also like um, there's a there's a board that exists called the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, uh, mm-hmm. which was created again, I think, pretty recently, maybe past five years, which is supposed to offer reports and insights as to how NSA surveillance is being done, as to how Americans' privacy is being handled in in surveillance in all kind of forms. Uh, the problem is that the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, also known as a PCLOB, uh, P-C-L-O-B, PCLOB for short, um, they have they they have one person on the board, I believe, right now, and so they need uh, they need to be jump started essentially, and so okay. it sounds like oh there there's you know there's there's a board that's supposed to do this thing, but that board is understaffed, and so it's like right. what do we do? Things like that happen. Um, you can get involved in so many areas. Again, you know, you can get involved in, uh, say that this, you know, the, again, the, the office of the director of national intelligence, that they have to do their job. You can get involved and say that, oh, P club has to be restarted. It has to, uh, get people who really care about civil liberties back onto the board and has to, you know, start launching investigations if it can, or it has to start, you know, looking and reading and releasing reports. Um, there are different avenues that this can happen. And the toughest one, for sure, is that uh, this court that oversees NSA surveillance, again, that FISA court, mm-hmm. Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, um, they're the toughest by far. The, the advocacy around telling the FISA court to do something, I don't think exists, right? It's that much of a wall. And so we know that they provide oversight, you know, the most direct judicial oversight to the NSA, um, but trying to break that transparency, like trying to break that wall to make it transparent is extremely difficult. Like it's just so, so difficult. It's a, it's transparency wrapped in transparency. Uh, sorry. It's, it's non-transparency wrapped in non-transparency like over and over again. And so unfortunately we, we do just have to rely on, on other avenues. All right. Well, um, uh, one last question. And if, if yeah. I want to learn more about these things, if I want to learn more about, uh, the mass surveillance and things like that, I obviously I recommend the intercept article. Uh, it's long, but mm-hmm. it's good. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes, uh, as well as, uh, the EFFs article uh, related to that. What else might you recommend if somebody wanted to kind of learn more about these things and, and, uh, and be even more shocked? What, where, where might <laughs> they go to learn more? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would, uh, my first recommendation uh, pretty often is actually just to look up on Frontline's website, you know, uh, the investigatory news site. Uh, mm-hmm. Frontline has done quite a few uh, episodes, specials yeah. on NSA surveillance throughout the years. Uh, they did one after Snowden's disclosures uh, about about that program PRISM. That's what they used to call mm-hmm. it. Um, and they've done one, you know, they did it years before. Uh, they've talked about the president's uh, surveillance program, as I talked about earlier in this program. Um, 
Frontline, I again just just go to Frontline and look up like NSA, and you will find really well done stuff. And that that's I'm a huge fan of Frontline, so that's like my kind of thing. But always, um, you know, read EFF and definitely uh, read the Intercept for these issues. Um, they do important groundbreaking work. Yeah, and one of the ones that uh, I, I recommend this one as well is Frontline. It's called The United States of Secrets, and it was a two-part episode, and I think it's the one you were referring to. It's quite good mm-hmm. and quite scary. So That's a great one. Yeah, it's also scary. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming back and talking about these issues. These are so important, and um, I just don't feel like they get enough attention. So thanks for coming on and talking to us about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks for having me on the show. What a really important conversation. I want to thank David Reese again for coming on the show. Uh, always great to have him on, and these these topics for me are near and near to my heart. This whole the whole reason I got into this business, to be honest, was when you know Edward Snowden dropped those big bombshell revelations back in what was it, 2013? God, it's already been like five years now, and uh, you know this mass surveillance stuff is very near and dear to my heart. So I'm glad he came on the show, and it's good to talk about this stuff. This this intercept article was really quite amazing. I highly encourage you to read it. I've got a link to it in the show notes. So uh, please check that out. If not, you can just search online, go to the, you know, look for the intercept and look for their article on these AT&T buildings. It's, it's scary to really to think what's going on. And we, we probably don't know most of it. So anyway, uh, get involved, get, in, get informed and uh, demand some answers from your government representatives on what's going on and how we can strike the right balance between uh, individual privacy and, you know, the need for the, the obvious need for law enforcement, the warrant based, you know, surveillance. And that's going to wrap up our show today. I just want to uh, say one more time, the book is out. The Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons 3rd Edition has hit the shelves. Uh, it's really great. I finally got my actually my own copy myself. The uh, A-Press, my wonderful new publisher, has sent, sent me 10 free copies to uh, to do with as I, as I will. And I finally got to see it myself. And this is going to sound silly. I didn't even realize that it was full color. Uh, when I did publish the first couple of copies of the book, it was black and white because it was just expensive to do it in color. Uh, but when I started flipping through the pages, like, oh my gosh, this is color. It's like it's like that point in the Wizard of Oz when they when they when they go and they land in Oz, and she walks out the door and everything's in color. <laughs> it was just kind of that kind of an experience when I flipped through the book and started seeing that. So anyway, it, the book is. Uh, a, a really quite an accomplishment. I'm very proud of it. It's uh, 400 pages over. It's over 150 new tips now. Uh, just keeps getting bigger and more comprehensive every time, and uh, covers all the latest stuff. And you know, it has. It's been two years since the last edition came out, and so much has happened. So it covers you know all the new OSs and the new realities of what's going on in today's world. So uh, definitely pick that up, even if you maybe if, even if you've got an older copy, because uh, there's always something new in there. And you know, if you're the family IT person, or if you're the person that people you know, turn to and say, Hey, what should I do about this? Should I get an antivirus? Do I have a virus? You know, what kind of computer should I get? What kind of smartphone should I get? How do I protect my kids? You know, all that kind of stuff. It's all in the book. And, uh, so, you know, think about maybe give that as a gift for somebody, uh, for Christmas, maybe that's coming up soon. Uh, it's, it makes a great gift. If someone maybe just bought a new computer, someone's going off to college, gets a new laptop. Uh, this is, this is a great time for people to learn about this kind of stuff. And yeah, as I always kind of say, it's kind of like inoculations, you know, it, it, the more information, the more protected some of us are, the better we all are, even for even for the people who don't do it. Um, it helps all of us. So anyway, tuning my own horn. But the book is out. It, it's we're really proud of it. It's great. It's from A-Press. It's uh, Firewalls, Dense Up Dragons. Go get it at any store. It's all over the place now, not just, not just Amazon. 
And then that will do it this week. Uh, as always, stay safe, everybody, and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.